what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on the Mesh.TV podcast network. My name is Alan Jackson. With me, Chris Fry, we jointly operate the Foot Candle Film Society and our annual Foot Candle Film Festival. Chris, how you doing, man? I am doing well. I feel good because we're supposed to, we're also part of, you and I are both part of the North Carolina Film Critics Association. Yes. And it's getting to be that time where we have to nominate films for what we have our, our local awards here in North Carolina, what we think are some of the best films of the year. And I feel good because I've finally been able to see some of the big names. One of the ones we're reviewing on the show, the mm. Fablemans hadn't caught up with it, but I finally was able to catch up with it. So I'm like, okay, I think I may have some sense in my head of what I think are the best films. So of the you've year. already sent in your nomination for the menu as best picture of the year. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> I say best, that in joking. Best script. And, I, and, look, I, I, you know, I'm just, I'm joking because I know you are not a fan of the film, but uh, really. I am anxious to hear as the episodes go along here at the end of the year, kind of where our thoughts are going to fall as we start to look at the best of the year. And here we're going to be discussing two films in this review, this episode, uh, two reviews of films that are ones you know have been batted around as possible award contenders. Okay, and also as a little bit of a theme, the two films we'll be reviewing are both by directors making quote autobiographical films about themselves, even though the characters' names are different and you know some situations have been slightly modified. More or less, these are films about themselves and growing up as a child and some of the things that influenced or impacted them in their life. So first up, we'll be talking about, as you just alluded to, Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, uh, followed by a review of James Gray's The Armageddon Time, not The Armageddon Time, just Armageddon Time. Right. That'll be the two films we're going to be reviewing. So we're going to have a full review of each film. Then as we get into news, um, again, it's end of the year. So this kind of just always happens. A lot of nomination lists start popping up. The first one we've seen now is the Golden Globes, which regardless of what you think about the Golden Globes, it at least is interesting to look at their nomination list to see kind of what's maybe got some weight behind it right now, film-wise, or it's maybe. It can sometimes be an early predictor of what maybe not for Oscars. And, so but I also think it's just funny to look at their nominations because I think their choices sometimes are very interesting. So yes. we're going to discuss that in a little bit in our sure. news. And then the uh, sight and sound list came out as far as the best films of all time is something that gets updated. How often? Every every 10 years. Every 10 years. So this is now the, the 2022 version. Some uh, interesting, interesting things happen on the list this year. So we're going to talk about that in our news section as well. And then, of course, we have recommendations that we will give at the end of the episode. Chris, I am hoping, is going to be recommending something for the festive holiday season <laughs> because I may not have a good recommendation to share. Okay. So I'm going to look to Chris to give me something new I can watch here in the holidays and enjoy with my family. So we will be doing all of that in this show. But first off, let's just get right into our first review. It is Steven Spielberg's film, The Fablemans. 
like to change how everything looks. It's hard to find our house. Ours is the dark house with no lights. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. Sammy's on my team, takes after me. Chris, with The Fablemans, we have a film that is loosely based on Spielberg's childhood. Now, again, how loose it is, uh, it's kind of, you know, I've read things about Spielberg's biography. It sounds like most of the elements in this film are pretty spot on, but it is choosing to use a different family's name and different names of the characters involved. But if you go on the idea that this is truly Spielberg's childhood, we follow him growing up in uh, post-World War II era Arizona. From age 7 to 18, uh, this film features him as a young man named Sammy Fableman, who discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of movies help us to see the truth about each other and ourselves. Um, Chris, we have a, kind of a, a, a nice cast here of actors portraying the Spielberg family as the Fablemans, as they're referred to in this film. And uh, we do, as it said in that synopsis, see a little bit of the inspiration that led Sammy Fableman to become a film director while at the same time wrestling with some family drama happening within his, between his parents. That uh, is the thrust of most of the film. Chris, this is a film that when we saw the trailer for it seven, eight months ago, whenever it was that the trailer for this came out, we watched it right here on the show. And I remember you and I both having some of the same concerns about this film that it was going to be, a very, uh, I don't want to say navel gazing because that's not, that sounds a little too, too, too uh, lowbrow there. But the idea that is a truly a let's celebrate Steven Spielberg as a filmmaker and let's raise him up on a pedestal and make this film about himself and and, and tell that story. And it was maybe going to be very a lot of fluff and a lot of kind of pomp and circumstance about Spielberg as a filmmaker. So my question to you is. Our prediction, when we kind of were concerned about it, we said you know, it looked good, but we were just concerned that it was going to be maybe in that direction. Uh, did we have reason to be concerned, or do you feel like there's some weight to this film to make it a worthwhile entry and something to be considered come awards time? Wow. So lots to unpack there. I did. I threw um, a lot at you. So I guess, you know, my concerns from the trailer um, – Steven Spielberg for me overall as a filmmaker, his films have been, I, I, I think he's very talented, but some of them have been, you know, misses. It's not like he's a hundred percent, you know, right. I think all of his films have been awesome, but um, I think the film, I guess the short answer is the film worked for me. I think there are things to consider with it for um, awards time. But I can see how some people, which I feel like this is actually addressed in the film. So it's, I think there are several layers to this film. You can just see it if you knew nothing about Steven Spielberg and the fact that, okay, this guy makes movies. I think it would be an interesting take on a coming of age story. Say you didn't know, you didn't think it was anything to do. All you knew is it's a movie. You walk into it and all you know is it's a movie about a little boy making movies. Where I think it would be an interesting take on a coming of age story. Um, how much, like you've referenced, how much is true, how much is not true? Well, I'm sure some things were 
increased for dramatic effect, you know, because mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg, if there's anything that can be said about any of his films, he does things to, in service of the movie. He tried, so certain facts may be allotted or, you know, adjusted. Um, and I feel like one of the things that won me over about the film is I feel like there's several times in the film that he kind of acknowledges what's happening in the film. And I feel like Steven Spielberg is speaking directly through Sammy Fableman later in the film. There's an instance where someone is asking him why he did something specifically. Mm -hmm. And at first he gives this offhanded, Oh, I just point the camera and whatever comes out happens, happens true. And you can hear Spielberg saying that, but then when the person pushes back on that and they give an interpretation of why something's done, he's like, well, how did that make you feel? Or like, you know, so it's kind of, there was some engagement there that I felt like was a high level meta thing. And I'm a sucker for meta stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like there was a lot of that in this movie, but if you're looking at it, I I can see some people saying this is nothing but a hundred percent fluff and it didn't really work for me. It just put Spielberg up on a pedestal and I found it boring and tedious. And I'd be like, okay, um, I can see how you think it, I feel like there was enough things in the film that kind of took the shine off the character of Sammy because sometimes he's warned about things. I, I don't know. I feel like there were, there was more to it than just putting Spielberg up on a pedestal. Um, but I don't know. What's, uh, what's your off-the-cuff um, take? I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> I do feel like my predictions early on with this film were pretty spot on from my perspective. I, I did feel like... Okay. Look, this is a wonderful looking film. It's shot and filmed very, very well. Agreed. And there are moments in this film and scenes in this film that I think are absolutely wonderful. As a total film, though, and the story it's trying to tell, I feel like it was a terribly overwritten film where I don't feel like I'm hearing people talk the way that people actually talk. I feel like things were... A lot of expedition, uh, exposition uh, filling in with people's dialogue. I I felt like it was overwritten. But so I look at it from a technical standpoint, and I love the film. I love the look. I love the texture of the film. I love the, the score that's with the film, everything about it. But it's just I'm hearing people say things in dialogue that does not ring true to me at all. So it was really hard for me to look at this as a true, authentic film story about uh, this family and In any uh, other filmmakers work. I would probably, I, okay, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's overwritten, but it worked for me. And I think it worked for me because it was made by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of his films, if he wasn't kind of somehow reference, it's, I guess, because I come <laughs> to expect it in Steven Spielberg for, he is a crowd. It's interesting. We'll get to it the review of Armageddon time and mm-hmm. how I feel about it. Cause these two are very interesting. Yes. It's very interesting pairing this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like I know what I expect from a Steven Spielberg yeah. film. And I feel like this delivered it. I feel like it's good. Is it overwritten? Yes. But some of the things that were overwritten or maybe considered to be overwritten, I think were well done anyway and shot well and mm-hmm. acted well. And overall, I, I think it was an attempt overwritten at trying to be interesting. And I appreciate it. Well, see, here's the thing. If Steven Spielberg was making this movie, but instead making it about his friend, George Lucas. And yes, I assume Steven Spielberg. I do give, I, I know that his films, there are, 
that overriding and, and kind of heightened dialogue and heightened scenes and heightened moments. I get that. And like you said, I kind of give Spielberg some, some leeway on that. And if it was about somebody else, I would totally say, yeah, that, that, that works. He's making a film, a love letter to another director. He's describing the story of another director. He's doing this about himself though. And that's the thing. I think those two elements combined just didn't work for me where I just felt like, okay, Sammy Fableman, I saw nothing wrong with this kid. Like at all. I didn't tell me, tell me what he did wrong. Like in this film, like what, what, what made him a bad character or like what made him a human character where he did something wrong? He hid things from his father. Um, he also tried to do things to make him popular in school. He did. He hid he things from his father. Because of his his mother I mean, I can, I can go. Yeah. Am I saying he's a perfect, I don't think he was a perfect. I don't think he was a horrible person either. I think he was a human person. Mm-hmm. And I think that was fleshed out by some of the things that, that's some of the things that happened in the film. Um, mm. He hid certain facts from his father in the, in the interest of, I guess there's no secret. Steven Spielberg's parents didn't have a happy marriage. The Fablemans have a troubled yeah. relationship in their marriage. So I think he, uh, how he, there's a, and this may or may not work for you. Some people see it as exposition, which I understand it is exposition, but there's a character that comes and stays with the Fablemans. He's an uncle Mm -hmm. and he has a conversation with Sammy and it basically lays out, you have to sacrifice family for art or art for family. Like, you know, there's, it's a tug of tug of war. And some people can pinpoint that and say, that is Steven Spielberg and his co-writer, Tony Kushner, overriding things and it doesn't work for me and I don't but I think in that it shows yeah that may be a pull I don't know I can't speak for Steven Spielberg that he's actually had in his life but I think throwing that out there sometimes the uncle says you will sacrifice your family for your art and I think and I think it's very but there's some (laughs) it ends with him like being the uncle kind of being aggressive with Fableman's face. (laughs) And I can see that as something that kind of rings true as far as like, I don't don't know. It somehow worked. And then the, when the uncle leaves how that's done, like it's, it's, it's what I expect from Spielberg. Mm -hmm. And if some other director had done it, it might come across as cloying or something, but because I expect it, it didn't bother me. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was actually, there was some cleverness to it. So can I, but I, do I concede that, Oh, that's overwritten. It's there for nothing, nothing else but exposition. Yes. But Spielberg, even though one of his idols is Stanley Kubrick, unlike Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick puts things on the screen, lets you draw their own conclusions, leaves things to guess that ain't Spielberg. Mm. So going in, I know that he does stuff like that. So it doesn't bother me because you yeah. either like, or dislike, and it's, so it, it doesn't bother me. Well, it's fine. I mean, it's so, fine. It doesn't bother you. I'm saying it doesn't, sure. doesn't make it a good film or not. I, in my opinion, I think, you know, regardless of Spielberg's past history with films, I mean, this is still a very overwritten film where the characters maybe are not authentic. Maybe you know, overwritten, like, but not poorly written. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a well, yes and no. I mean, because I consider it poorly written when somebody is basically there for exposition point. The uncle exposition. Hey, look, he was, he, I mean, I love Judd Hirsch and he was excellent in that scene, but all of his dialogue was there to hammer home a point of, Oh, this is the message of the film. And this is what you got to remember type of thing. Julia Butters, who I think is a wonderful actress, young actress plays one of the, 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 the sisters. And she has a scene where she comes in to, in, to talk after a, 
a, a major family um, a drama. And her dialogue was just so, no child talks like this. No young person. It was so on the nose. Oh, but, but the father, my, our father's her best audience and all this stuff. It's like, it was so nailing. Look, I get it. It's Spielberg. It happens in his films. I guess it's just for me, the combination of knowing that it's not just Spielberg directing this film. It's him telling him story about himself. And he's overwritten with the co-writer. One thing I will notice, Steven Spielberg normally doesn't write films. Okay. He is not normally a writer. He's written three films, three of his films in the past, whatever, all of his career. This one he co-wrote with uh, Tony, K- Tony, Kushner. Tony Kushner. Yeah. And so, again, I do have to give him some blame on it. If it was somebody else completely writing the thing, I'm like, all right, well, he's going to raise up Spielberg and make everything just, you know, very, very positive on the character. But I uh, I don't know. I just felt like it was – there are moments in this film I honestly just I, – I had some eye roll moments. It was kind of like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe – that that's the way they wrote the scene out. And that's the dialogue that I'm hearing coming out of these people's mouths. Again, it was just, it was the combination of what I felt like was a typical Spielberg overwritten film, but it happened to be about himself. And that just makes the whole experience to me, not well, as effective that, that, in the end. And to me, that just validates it that much more. If you're going to mm. overwrite anything, what would you, I mean, I'm sure he was like, uh, Tony, I need this to be this way because it's about me. You know, I mean, he is the, he lived his life. And so if it sure. was anyone else's life, then, but I feel like, I, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, how you choose to portray the events that happened in your childhood. I feel like that's, you know, look, I, I hate more yeah. power to him. I have no, I'm, I'm believing I am. I am much more of a Spielberg apologist than you are that's in true. general. So nothing pains me more to say that this film just didn't really work for me as much, but at the same time, I you know, I, more credit to the guy. I don't blame him for wanting to make a film about his own life. A lot of people do that. We're going to talk about James Gray making a film about his own life. Right. There are like two or three other directors making films right now about their own lives that are out there. I get it. It's just when I don't feel like I can really connect with the people I see on screen because I don't feel like what I'm hearing or what I'm is is really what they're saying, then it just makes an automatic disconnect for me with the film. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of the best way I can, sure. the best way I can say it. I felt like Sammy Fableman was a, I mean, yes, you pointed out some things he did that, that you could perceive as not being good, but I could argue that every single one of those things was because he's trying to do the right thing in his mind, which whether or not it was, he's trying to do the right thing. He did not want to hurt his father and his mother's relationship anymore. And it was, so he held on to things. He held things from people. You know, I, I get it. All of the stuff at the end of the day, he's still a noble hero. Okay. He is still a noble hero at the end of the day, which again, everything he does in this film is for a greater good that may or may not pay off until later in the film or, you know, pay off later in his life. But nobody could walk away from this and say, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Sammy made some bad choices or Sammy did things that, you know, wasn't great. Everything he did was for a greater purpose or for a greater good or for, I don't know. So just, again, you add all those elements together and it was just, it was hard for me to connect with this film. Now, that being said, there are some moments in this film I think are absolutely wonderful. Okay. You mentioned the, um, the the uh, the kind of towards the end, there's a there's a, a moment where Sammy is showing a film that he has made right. to classmates and kind of in an event. 
And I thought that whole sequence was really, really interesting and really impressive. I liked it a lot. I'm like, oh, okay, they're doing something a little different because I I expected it was going to be going one direction where he was going to show this film. It was going to be kind of a a big, you know, uh, middle finger to some people in the uh, in the group. And it turns out it wasn't. And there was actually kind of something a little bit more he's trying to pull off with the film that actually led to the encounter you you were referencing a little bit earlier. I liked how that all played out. To me, that was really interesting and a little different than what I would have expected if this was a very just standard uh, standard storytelling. Um, there were other scenes I thought, uh, I think the scene where, again, I'll do this without spoilers, where mm-hmm. Sammy shares a film with a family member of his yes. in a very private setting yep. was very effective. Very, very good. So look, there are some great moments in this film and I think a lot of people will like this film. I think it's a good film to, for people to see. I just, you know, unfortunately given the fact that we've been doing this podcast and reviewing films for however many years now, Long time. Yeah, I tend to look at films with a little more uh, critical eye. And I'm, I, I just saw this as a very, very uh, overwritten is the best way I can describe it. Just felt like it just didn't ring true for me when I really needed this film to ring true with the characters and the dialogue I was hearing. So, yeah, I mean, I guess if, yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I did not have the same experience. I can hear mm-hmm. what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, but just totally didn't have the same experience. And I think, I guess the uniqueness of it, uh, for me, I felt like it was unique. We've seen tons of coming-of-age movies before, and what I liked specifically about this one was that it was a coming-of-age story told through cinema. We get to see the development of a young person. He remakes Greatest Show on Earth, okay, we see or a scene from Grace Show on Earth. Mm-hmm. We see that brings him joy. He is charged with editing a family camping trip. That brings discovery and heartbreak. Uh, revealing of uh, missing reel from that film is devastating as well. Um, then we see um, the senior skip day film is how mm-hmm. I'll refer to it. Yeah. Um, the shooting of that and then the showing of that. And then the aftermath of that, it's like you see, like normally you see a growth of a filmmaker watching their filmography. So this is a growth of a young person, a pre-filmmaker, a budding filmmaker through watching their filmography at various points in the film. And I really enjoyed that. Something too, that not, it's a different thing that kind of elevated the film for me. And it's, it's a Spielberg touch, but I feel like it's a very obvious Spielberg touch is the way he elides time. You have young Sammy gesturing or saying stop, and that immediately cuts to himself. Sammy saying the same word years later as like a Boy Scout. Mm -hmm. Um, He does the same thing Spielberg does, or his editor makes this happen for Spielberg. Sammy's lecturing his dad after he had premiered one of his films. His dad is kind of giving him a compliment, which is, I guess, maybe rare. (laughs) But Sammy's like, Dad, watch the road. He's giving him a compliment, but also happy because Sammy seems to be following in his father's footsteps. And his dad's overexcited. He's like, Dad, watch the road. That cuts to Sammy driving, I guess, to go get his license. Mm -hmm. And his father's like, you need to pay attention to what you're doing and not focus so much on film. So like those two filmmaking choices and the idea to do that, clever. Some could find it annoying, but I found it immensely gratifying. And I tell you one thing, too. So we have Greatest Show on Earth as kind of the set piece that opens. Mm -hmm. The set piece that finishes, and some may find it annoying, (laughs) um, but 
I'll not spoil it for anyone, but I'll just say Sammy's John Ford moment was gold the moment it started and specifically too how he kind of <laughs> like wraps it in a bow with the final shot is like, I just, I huh. just liked it. See, okay, here, here. I just really, 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 because it's no. kind of, it's kind of, actually that shot, I think you could say in many ways, I could see some people being like, that shot is the thing that just sent me over the edge, annoyed me to no end. And it's how I felt about the whole movie. Or you're like, I don't know. It's kind of like that. It either dumps you off the life raft <laughs> of the movie or pulls you back in. Like This is so interesting because I saw, I watched that last scene and I did really like it. The oh, whole sequence. Interesting. The whole good. Okay. But I'm watching it and I'm thinking, oh, okay, I bet you Chris Fry will like all of this, meaning the dialogue, the, the, the encounter, the actor in question, all the, all right. the choices made in there, the whole interaction at the end. But that last shot, I'm like, oh, I bet you Chris is going to hate that. And Chris doesn't. So yeah. interesting. Chris I, it. it didn't bother me. Although it I got, do, It got a laugh from me, yeah. actually. Although I do question as much as I like that scene. And there was more humor in the film than I ever would have thought. Well... Steven Spielberg does humor, but I thought the so. tone of that whole final sequence though felt out of place with the rest of the movie for me. Okay. I, 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 I still kind of question by the end. Okay. See, do this do without spoiling. I, I, you have a movie that for so much of its running time is focused on the family and primarily the parents. And that really, I mean, I'm, I totally get and understand if that's the driver of the film. But once a decision's made late in the film and a change happens within the family dynamics, that then goes away for, in my mind, as far as my recollection of what happens after that point. The one, major, one of the major characters is gone. We do not see that character for like the last 20 minutes of the film, something like that. And then we have the scene that you're you're discussing, which I do love. Okay, I love that whole scene. To me, that's a great short film. Like I love that little five minute short film. I could watch that again because it really was well done. But that short film at the end, it felt like it was lifted from a different story that needed to be told. I don't know. I'm I, I couldn't understand what it was about that that was trying to connect with well, the rest of the film other than it's a great story, it's a great thing to share. And you know, and if the that's film that's how Steven Spielberg ends his films is happily. So he could have, uh, hey, yeah. life stinks, people get divorced. Or that does happen, but Sammy is able to continue pursuing his dream. All right. I can loosely tie that together with that logic, but it's loose. It's a loose connection for that. Um, so, you know, as much as I love some of these scenes I've been kind of mentioning and the ones you mentioned, like, yeah, I love them. They're great scenes. They're well done. Technically speaking, the film is just a, a really, really impressive. Sure. But it's just at the end of the day, do I buy it? <laughs> do I buy it all? And I had a hard time buying it all. I had a hard time seeing it as if it is truly somebody kind of opening up their life to us and sharing this. Do I really, do I really feel like I bought it all? And, and I didn't. And I, I buy it as much as any nonfiction or any fiction film. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I, I think you and I are coming at this from two different directions when it comes from, to Spielberg. Yeah. You already have kind of a, I don't want to say low bar, but you have a lower than you lower That's opinion fair. of kind of his overall output. I have a higher opinion. Yeah. So for this, 
I you saw like it more as of his movies than me. I, I was hoping this would be something where we got to maybe wipe away some of the Spielberg sheen, some of that little gloss that you spray over it oh. and give me something a little bit. It doesn't have to be raw. I don't expect that from Spielberg, but give me something. Look, Schindler's List. Okay. Schindler's List. Technically, it was still a beautifully made movie, but I mean, I felt like that was Spielberg showing us I can make something more raw and make something more honest understood and i didn't see that here when i felt like this is the time to do that like don't don't spray the uh the spray can of of the glossy sheen all over everything with this one you don't have to your story is interestingly and interesting enough but i felt like it was nope i'm i'm still spraying it with this stuff because that's that's the way i want to do it for you you were already expecting that sheen to be on there. Correct. So for you, and I was not disappointed. You were not disappointed. <laughs> you, it was what you expected, but yeah. you were happy with the output. I was. So anyway, that I think we're just coming at it from different directions, but yeah, I can look at this in the surface. It is, it is a fine made, well-made film. Um, but I just, I, I wish I, I just wish I bought it more. I wish I didn't feel like it was just overwritten to such a degree that, that uh, it, it just didn't ring true for me. So, so here's another guidepost for me that'll let you know how I responded to the film. I watched this twice on the same day. Wow. I went to see it with my, which now could this shade how I feel about it? I just watched this film yesterday twice. So we're okay. recording this on a Monday. I watched it twice on a Sunday. I watched it with my father in the movie theater because he wanted to go see it. So that, you know, having the experience watching it with your dad. Mm, hey, and my dad yeah. was really super excited about yeah, seeing it. Yeah, okay. We talked for mm. it for about half an hour afterwards. Mm-hmm. Then got home at night. My wife wasn't able to go to the screening. She knew I had a critics link. She's like, oh, you know, I was like, yep, you know what? I got to review it tomorrow. I have some questions. Let me go ahead ah. and watch it again. Okay. All right. And I watched it again with her. And like, so, yeah, um, you know, for me to be willing to watch a two and a half hour film. That was five hours of my day yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that true. says something. Do I think it's flawless? No. You know, there are some things I can see the overriding comment, but I guess overall it just worked. So. Well, okay. All right. I'm glad you gave that perspective on yeah. kind of your viewing sure. experience. I do think watching it with a parent in a more community. See, I'm watching this by myself. Oh man. With a uh, heated uh, takeout dinner because of my entire family was out for the night doing other things. And I'm watching it by myself on my home TV uh, with uh, refried Japanese food. Okay, maybe it's not the most communal experience where I could be sharing it with others or kind of appreciating it on that level. Got so uh, maybe I'm watching it in a little more jaded position. I don't know. <laughs> okay, we haven't even, I mean, I know we've been going a while for on this, but sure. we haven't even, let's quickly just mention. Some specifics, uh, Michelle Williams, Paul Dano as the parents, mm-hmm. um, your thoughts on them. See, it's interesting. You know, as much as I was high on the film, Paul Dano, I thought was great. Michelle Williams first time through something about it yeah. kind of rang sugary and kind of not sugar, not, just rang weird. And uh, Michelle Williams, I think is an awesome actress. I've seen her in lots of other things as of many other people. And I think she's great. But something about it was odd. Watching it a second time, I think it was possibly poor choice, but cinematic shorthand for this person is struggling with mental things. Yes, I agree. And I think, but I don't blame Michelle Williams for that. I just think it was odd. So it- We blame the script. uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, seriously. So overwritten cinematic shorthand for this person has mental- So 
but somehow it still managed to work for me, I mm. guess, overall. But this would be an instance where this is probably one of my, I think one of the better films of the year, I think. Um, but it's an interesting thing where usually I say the better films of the year, like something that would be best picture has to have all things clicking on all cylinders, director, script, mm. acting. And honestly, the acting from the film, I don't think is as strong. Kind of the story and how it's woven together mm-hmm. and all comes to a piece works better for me. So it's it's weird that yeah. um, the acting was. Or I, I guess Michelle well, Williams. I mean, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think the parent. I think both the parents. Honestly, I, I mean, I, I I think the actors were doing what they were being asked to do, and they did really good doing it. I just feel like, again, it's just a culprit of the it's, it's the script was the issue for me. I felt like both characters are just a little overwritten to play certain personality traits. The actors in choice did them wonderfully, but so, it was just tough for me. So to, here's going to be kind of a, a rambling, as my thing, thoughts often are on this show, kind of a random analogy or whatever. So the first part of the film where Sammy was a younger kid. Yeah played by a different actor. So we have two different actors playing. We have Gabriel LaBelle who plays him as kind of the, mm-hmm. the older Sammy. Yeah. And then we have the younger Sammy who was played by a different kid. Um, Mateo Zorian. Zorian. Yeah. Um, during the scenes when he was on the screen and the way they were shooting things, it kind of made me feel like I was watching like a, Tim Burton, Edward Scissorhands type movie because mm-hmm. everything was very stylized and all the houses were cookie cutter and the way the parents were acting and the way the boy was acting felt like a very, only thing I, it's like an Edward Scissorhands type thing, like really weird. But then again, and it was like they were playing caricatures mm-hmm. of parents. Yeah. But, but then and it kind of faded a little bit as he got to be the older Sammy and the parents were older and their situations, they were moving around a lot. But for some reason that kind of worked for me because it was like Steven Spielberg is casting it back like through the eyes of a child. He's acting a certain way and his parents, he perceives them as acting a certain way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, like I say, overall the movie worked for me. And then that, mm-hmm. that kind of Tim Burton's caricature stifled reality or whatever kind of faded a little bit as the film. Went. I don't know. It's something it's, it was a weird thought that kind of, well, I almost wonder if the film for me might've worked better if it just went all in on this is a heightened reality. Of, this is a fable. Oh, fate. Well, and the I name, mean, the I fable, mean, man. So again, it's obviously that if yeah. it was played like that, like the whole thing was kind of this fable from a child's recollection growing up. Okay. I totally, I think I would have bought it a hundred hook, hook, lion sinker, Okay, but it wasn't played for that. It was played as real and authentic. And, and it tried, look, I am always a Spielberg apologist when it comes to uh, detailing the family dynamic, Mm -hmm. because to me, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and the way he portrayed that family, Mm -hmm. and the turmoil that family went through, and the way he showed it on camera, I I know the guy can do it. (laughs) (laughs) I just never saw that level here, so it did have this heightened level of... Oh, it's just, you know, yes, the per- the parents are perfect when he's a little kid. And, and uh, uh, yes, they're different, but they they kind of bounce off each other as parents and they, they create this great environment for the child. And I don't know. I, I, I hear I agree with what you're saying, because I, I do feel like that intro was a lot more heightened. And I think it automatically set me in the mood of, OK, is that is that how this is going to be? Is this is going to be this? 
kind of childhood recollection story where things are a little more uh, performing at a higher level than what's real. And I guess that then when I saw Steelberg tried to be real with things and it, it just, hmm. it, it, it didn't, that's what caused me to feel like overall it didn't work as well. Gotcha. I will say acting wise, uh, Gabriel LaBelle as the older Sammy that we follow, I think he's great. And I think he's do, do really think he, good. Do you feel like he, he also has kind of a, um, not I won't say luck of the draw, but he also looks a lot like Steven. He Stewart. does, yeah, because yeah, yeah. I felt like it was like just I was like, oh, sure. man, this kid really looks like. But I just I, I bought I, I I liked his acting sure. so sure. much in this. Again, he in my mind he was asked to play a quote perfect person, you know, in a way because I just I, again I don't feel like there were any faults with the kid other than being a, a, a young kid, so. But I loved his performance. I think he's a really good actor. I cannot wait to see more things he does. Um, so yeah, acting wise, I, I'm good. It's just I just feel like all the actors were just given some very heightened lines to say. And okay, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, Julia Butters, great in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with a small role. I think she was also in another film we saw. I'm trying to remember what that was. Anyway, she's really good. You know, <laughs> the Gray Man. With oh him. yeah, yeah. She was like one of the only things I liked in that. Um, <laughs> sure. But again, the dialogue she's given, it's like when she's acting like a real kid, she's great. But then when you give her a scene where she has to spout out some lines that just sound like, mm, mm. I don't know, it, it, it bothered me. Again, I don't hold any of the actors responsible for that. I really just feel like it is a uh, overwritten script. Hmm. So, um, okay. but anyway, uh, acting wise, it was great. The actors were doing what they were supposed to do. And, With the exception, and, and, you thought Michelle Williams. Or you, not, no, no, I liked her acting was okay. It was just the role was a little weird. Okay. Yes, gotcha. exactly. It's the it's all in the writing gotcha. for me. I think performance wise is great. Uh, it's just the acting, or it's just the the writing of it was was what was my problem. Is what I look to. Um, that's kind of where I am with it. I'm, okay. I'm, I've got nothing more to say. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I sound, I sound like I'm negative on the film and I guess it's more a little disappointing for me. And I, and I hate saying that the film is not good just because of one aspect, which to me is the screenplay is the writing, mm. the dialogue that I'm hearing coming out of people's mouths. I did not buy. Gotcha. That's my issue with the film. If I could look past that technically, cinematically, uh, everything else is wonderful. And I so think, it's I think just for me, that. I think for me to sum up kind of my feelings on it, um, if the film was called The Spielbergs, I would have a lot of the same qualms that you have about things being overwritten or heightened. Or, but because it's called The Fablemans, I think I'm a little bit more willing. I'm a little, I'm giving them a little bit more leeway, hmm. I guess. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm going to end it there. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> Fair All right, enough. that's fair enough. I could go on for a lot longer, but uh, we got another film to review and other things to talk about. Although the Fablemans, uh, it is going to come up later in our conversation because we're going to talk about Golden Globe nomination. Ah. So just be prepared. You may be hearing this film come up a little bit in that discussion. But uh, that is the Fablemans. It is playing in theaters right now. Although I think as of the time we're recording this, if I remember correctly, on December 13th, which is tomorrow at the time of this recording, it is going to be available on video on demand because it is uh, not performing as well box office wise. And uh, I think they want to get more people to see it quickly and make it available. Before they do so. end of year list. Yeah. Sure. So anyway, that is, uh, so by the time you hear this podcast, you could see it no matter what town you live in or right. what theater you're near, it's available online to see. So, uh, or to rent or buy. 
So that's The Fablemans and by Steven Spielberg. So let's move on to our second review, Chris. It is James Gray's latest film uh, starring, oh gosh, the two actors. Jamie Strong and Hathaway. There we go. Didn't have my notes pulled up in front of me, but Chris is on the ball. Uh, it is Armageddon time. The United States stands for an idea whose time is now. Ronald Reagan will win tonight. What a schmuck. <laughs> I think I want to be an artist when I grow up. You're going to be an artist if you want to be. Nothing's going to stop you. You're going to college. You'll have dinner with kings if he plays his cards right. I really like your stickers. My stepbrother gave them to me. He's in the Air Force. That's so cool. Armageddon Time, interesting title for a film. One of the taglines is the end of an era, the beginning of everything. It's told as a drama, which is a deeply personal coming of age story about the strength of family and the generational pursuit of the American dream. We've talked about how this is James director, writer and director, James Gray is kind of reminiscing, looking back on his childhood and instances and things that happened in his childhood that may have formed him as a filmmaker. Uh, we did mention Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, uh, star in the film, as well as Anthony Hopkins, splashed all over the advertising, plays a supporting role as a grandfather to Paul Graff, who is the character that's kind of a stand-in for James Gray. Uh, a young Banks Rapita plays Paul Graff. Uh, there's a childhood friend that he makes in the film, Jalen Webb, who's playing a friend named Johnny, who, through this relationship, through this friendship, Paul kind of learned some life lessons. So, um, Alan, having said all that, how did you, what was your experience with Armageddon time? Um, I mean, this is going to sound really, really pat, but I, I liked it. I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> it's hard not to kind of do some compare and contrast with the fable that we just talked about, but here it goes. Sure. Um, I, I felt this was, I felt this film had some interesting things to say. And I liked it's more raw and I think a little more honest portrayal of characters, warts and all. Yes. Okay. This film had, you know, characters have issues. And unlike the Fablemans, which, you know, is also from a child's perspective, viewing their parents and the relationship with them. Uh, it's interesting because uh, although I don't think the acting is as good as in the Fablemans. Got you. By the parents. I think the authenticity was a great, much greater here in Armageddon time. Yeah. It felt very realistic. Very, very real. Yeah, sure. And I did like the, the young actor, uh, Banks Rapita, uh, in, in the role of Paul, I thought was great. He was a real kid. And I, I, I admire James Gray looking back in his own childhood and saying, yeah, okay. I, <laughs> there's some things I didn't do very well and some th choices I made that were not really smart. And here's some lessons I had to learn along the way. And that lesson, I, I think the fact that the film deals so much with, I mean, you could, you could give it a really easy answer and say it's about racism. It's really not as much about racism. It's about privilege. It's mm -hmm. about this sure. status level of status that people fall in. I don't think it mattered whether Johnny Davis in this particular movie was, African-American or whether he was some other nationality or any of that. It was just the fact that it's what is your position of privilege and 
how do you how do you handle this position of privilege that you may find yourself in compared to others who don't? There's an amazing line of dialogue from the father played by Jeremy Strong late in the film. I think there's been an altercation and he's having to pick up Paul from I'll say the police. I mean, you know, we can leave it at that. Sure. And he, the the statement he makes to his son is, is that yeah, we we are in a we are in a higher status of privilege. And in a way, we kind of have to use that to gain our way in life. And it's okay to do that. Which again, you walk away from that. That's the message the child is hearing, which is obviously, you know, kind of a, a tough message to hear and, and probably not agree with a lot of places. But that's that's where this film's coming from, is a very sense of, hey, this is this is a dilemma I found myself in as a child. And this is what I had to try to figure out to learn from it. And uh, it wasn't always the best lessons I was being told, but it was real. I mean, this is really what I was, what I was hearing. So anyway, I just, I, I like the authenticity of it and, you know, did it have the technical flourish and masterful filmmaking that the, the Fablemans did? No, no. I, I think this was a much more simply made film, Sure, but I just liked the authenticity of it more. Um, you asked me which film I ultimately walked away liking more it might be Armageddon time just a little bit over the Fablemans. Um, so that's where I came out on this film. I actually was kind of surprised cause I did not expect to go into this liking it or appreciating it as much as I did. And it really was just the, the overall message and lessons I felt like had more weight to them. And I felt like, had more authenticity to it. And that I appreciated that. So um anxious to hear your thoughts, Chris on this. Yeah. James Gray and I have, have a tenuous relationship. He's talked to me about that. He yeah. has said you, you sure two are just I'm having, sure he's struggling with you it. two have a oh. tough, tough relationship. No, he, he's obviously, he's a talented filmmaker, but if um, I've seen, you know, several pieces of his work, the immigrant at Astra and a lot of his work just to me, it doesn't help that a lot of times it's very slow cinema. Mm-hmm. This film was very slow to me mm-hmm. and uh, it doesn't help that it's, you know, it's a 1980s like period piece and the color palette, everything's just kind of like muted drab in a weird way, kind of gloomy. And so it just doesn't keep me very engaged the filmmaking itself, apart from the acting, apart from the story, just like the cinematography, the set production design, everything just, kind of lulls me into a sense of Mm -hmm. boredom, which, you know, maybe it's the eighties, maybe that's his experience in childhood. So maybe it's, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't help me keep engaged with the film. Sure. Um, that said at the end of the film, there are some shots that are empty rooms and kind of pull back shots from empty rooms, which that was like, it was kind of like a wake up call. Like, Oh, okay. Now this is a separation, a leaving of childhood behind or kind of a having to be forced to grow up because of what you've experienced and the lessons you've come to learn mm-hmm. during the runtime of the film. That was an interesting choice. You know, I thought, mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of like, kind of woke me up a little bit, but overall I just felt like the film was a little, you used the term in the first review kind of navel gazing. And mm-hmm. I felt like it was a two hour therapy session for the director to come to terms with what he had gone through. And, I guess because of what you're saying about the whole privilege aspect and of what his father says. And he kind of, by the, how he chooses to walk out of his high school, you mm-hmm. could say that he's trying to like separate himself from that, mm-hmm. that way of living. But 
it just felt like stuff I've seen before. And because this Mm -hmm. was self-referential, it just wasn't unique enough to keep me engaged. And I think it doesn't help. Um, even though, yes, you, to say the film's about racism, that does play like, you know, how the boys treat, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Johnny's character is, is black. So, and he doesn't have good circumstances. His Mm -hmm. home life's not great. Um, and how he is treated in the public schools and how he's like, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of just put us pushed aside. But I feel like, because I feel like it was written just enough to give you that understanding, but not written enough to make that character any more than kind of a stand in and kind of, it's from the white person's perspective of, Oh, look at this. And Oh, I've tried to help him, but then I ended up couldn't. And Oh, I feel bad about it. And I feel like that's been shown so much Mm. in cinema and stuff. And I mean, but it's a part of this guy's life. So you can't say, well, that didn't happen to you, but I just, overall, there were just so many things that just didn't really keep me engaged. It's not a bad, it's not a terrible film. It's not a bad film. I think that, the acting for what they were allowed to do was good. Um, I could see Anthony Hopkins. I mean, you know, the man, (laughs) the man infinitely comes into any film Mm -hmm. and, you know, yes. Is he playing kind of a stereotypical, if you think about Anthony Hopkins, the age he is now, he's the wise grandfather, the wise grandfather, but man, he does pull it off. The man knows how to do it. And look, I'll tell you, (laughs) I, 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 I went through two quick emotions at the very, towards the very end of this film. Cause there is a scene in the bedroom with the young, with the, uh, you know, banks as Paul that I, as soon as it started, I thought, Oh, here we go. Does this it have is... to do with him sitting at a desk and then somebody sitting in a bed near but him. There's a mirror reflection. Yes. Where, yeah. Okay. Actually that actually, that in addition to the dolly shots backward, yeah. those are, those two filmmaking touches, I was like, yeah. okay. Well, I see when that scene started, I'm like, up oh, here we go. Here's the Oscar <laughs> clip. This is why they brought Hopkins into the film. But then the film, the scene plays out. I'm like, nah, that worked. That was good. No, I, I liked what they, I mean, I liked how they use his character. And those yeah. moments, the moments that we've just mentioned, those are what redeemed the film for me. Just totally feeling like this was disposable mm. was those filmmaking touches yeah. kind of made it a little more. <laughs> I guess it's interesting when you said this was like a, this was like a therapy session. And I agree. I Which do I feel like it was saying more. that about the fable. No, actually the Fablemans. I feel like it, I felt like I was watching a true just autobiography book uh, okay. where this is, I'm really peering into a, a therapy session. And for me, I kind of like the rawness of the therapy session a little bit more than the gloss of the autobiography. So, uh, anyway, I, I think, you know, it's interesting take is, it's, it's interesting that we have these two films coming out at basically the same time. And then there's another film by filmmaker that's kind of, Oh, uh, Empire Barto, oh, okay. uh, Bardo is Bardo. kind of a self, uh, you know, uh, the director making a film about his own, his own background in life kind of happening at the same time. It's kind of an interesting time to see all this happening, but, um, all at the same, same moment. I, I, I think I like Armageddon time just a little bit more because I like the authenticity I felt like, but, um, you know, I mean, it definitely, which I think is, kind of indicative of James Gray's work. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do the whole sheen thing mm-hmm. that Spielberg does. No. So you know, it is very raw, very, I mean, I like yeah, the fact that the, you know, Paul Graff, who's James Gray stand in as a child, there's times you don't like him. Oh, I never liked him. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, good. I mean, that's the <laughs> he thing. Succeeded, he succeeded, which is, which is brave. Yeah. I for mean, James Gray to say, this is kid. Yeah. He disobeys his parents constantly. He seems like he has all the privilege in the world. Yes. 
Yeah. So that's I, it. And that's yeah. why I, I appreciated it. I mean, I didn't need to like the character. I wanted to see, I wanted to, I wanted to see some truth. And I think I saw it in this film. And, uh, there's even, you know, again, the dialogue with his father towards the end. I mentioned again, which I still think is just an amazing and that was a good line s- of dialogue to sure. throw in there. It's like, wow, okay, they're basically saying here in 1980 or whenever this is happening, 81, 82, like they're basically saying, yeah, uh, we kind of have to use our position of privilege to get ahead in life and use it. And uh, it, it sucks for anybody who's not in that position. And we, I feel sorry for him, but. Sucks to be them. It's basically the what the line of dialogue he was saying. And I'm like, wow. Which is a very okay. 80s kind oh, yeah. of thing. It's and like, that's oh, Armageddon time being yeah. the kind of the dialogue, the, the title of the film because of that. Right. Basing it off of Ronald Reagan's kind of comments about how we're going to be facing Armageddon if we don't, you know. And a uh, Clash song as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there's that too, yeah. So anyway, it's just, uh, I liked it. I thought it was a good film. I thought it was very, very real, very authentic. Uh, the acting, you know, it was fine. Anne Hathaway, I she was okay. I, See, I don't think it was great. Um, I feel like both her and Jeremy Strong, there again, I like both actors. I don't know. I'm not as familiar with Jeremy Strong because I haven't watched uh, mm-hmm. Succession, but I know who he is. And I feel like they were saddled by the script. And I feel like I didn't really get a good feeling of, it was it was like they were just footnoted. It's like, okay, yeah. this guy's a, you know, a failing, struggling right. dad. The mom has wants to be something, but she's not, there's abuse, but then it's like, there's, there's tensions there that aren't thoroughly. Like, I don't really get, she was the one that was more confusing for me Well, because it was like, wait, you support your husband. You tell him, Oh yeah, go beat up our kid. But then, but then you kind of, and it's like, what? Like it didn't. I I almost felt like this did a little different job where I, I truly felt like I was seeing the parents through Paul's eyes, the child's mm, eyes. Okay. More than I did on the Fablemans, where the Fablemans is like, I think it was, we're supposed to see it as this omnis, omnipotent vo- uh, eye watching gotcha. the parents, where here, I'm, I feel like I'm just seeing it from Paul's perspective. This is what he hears, he feels, he sees about his parents. It's kind of left to us, like, what's their true relationship like outside of his eyes, in a way? That's that's the impression I got from it. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't think Anne Hathaway's performance was anything to write home about. I, I don't expect her to get any nominations, or I kind of don't want her to. I don't. <laughs> no, it's nothing against her. It's just I don't feel like the role was was right. really that great. I got you. And Jeremy Strong, I think, was fine. I've seen him in Secession. I'm a big fan of his work in that show. Getting to see him play someone a little older and playing, uh, well, not a lot different than he does in Succession. So, hmm. um, but I will say Banks Rapita as Paul. And even Jalen Webb as Johnny, I thought were both both young actors were really good in this film. So I think the other thing, which you know, we've talked about other films, we've talked about in the past, and you say if something bothers you, then that's kind of like a hiccup for you, and that kind of takes you out of the film. Yours was the stilted, not stilted, but overwritten dialogue mm-hmm. from the first film, Fablemans. With this film, it was kind of like the drabness. Yeah. The color palette. The lack of anything really engaging. Engaging. But then there are other two (laughs) nitpick points, and these are stupid nitpick points. At least you're laying it out there. But yeah, I mean, I feel like, but one thing that really bothered me was the boy transitions to a new school, and they make this big deal of having him carry like a a portfolio thingy Mm -hmm. instead of a book bag, and kind of like that's a big deal. His brother goes to the same school, has already been there for a while. His brother's wearing a book bag. The kid, Paul, goes to the school Everyone else is walking around wearing book bags and he walks in carrying his portfolio. I don't understand why the parents would have had, unless they were wanting him to be a subject of bullying. 
or they they have this higher expectation for him than their their older son has kind of given up on that expectation. It's just kind of settled into his routine. I don't know. I, I yeah. I mean, I, there are some questions, and I think that's office also from James Gray's mind. That could have been a question for him too. Like, well, it gives. <laughs> why why did they do this? Um, could be. And yeah. then something else that felt really jarring to me because this was very. Um, you know, it says this is the eighties and this yeah. is obviously New York, but All everything's right. kind of even keel. They're not like making any like real life references that I'm supposed to catch on to. Paul Graff is not James Gray. His character's name's not James Gray. So you're just like, okay. And then he slammed, he goes to the school and there's an appearance by Fred and Marianne Trump. Mm-hmm. And that threw me so much. I was like, okay, I hope that this is 100% accurate to Mr. James Gray, because if yes. not, I feel like this is, is short. I feel like this is shorthand for just like, Oh, we're privileged. From what I understand, it's, I read it's true. Completely true. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause that is not, I, I, I read <laughs> that uh Fred Trump kind of harassed him in the hallway first day of school. And the Marianne okay. Trump was brought in uh, to speak to the to the to okay, the Okay, that is class. not what I heard. But okay. I mean, it's the internet, so I don't know. I that's, true. that's what I read. And I kind of read up on it afterwards because I was okay. at the same point. Okay. Uh, but you know, Chris, at the same time, okay, yes, we're we're watching Paul Graf, and it's supposed to be a standing for James Gray and all that. Well, I mean, the Fablemans had you know John uh, John, John Ford. Ford. He did. You know, I mean, and again, we we weren't there to know did that actually happen right. the way it true. detailed. We don't know. Uh, it was a little jarring, but the fact that at least from what I understand, it is true. Uh, and it obviously, I mean, if the whole message of the film is kind of growing up in your position and uh, privilege level of privilege in your life, I mean, who best to help hammer that home than to bring in a couple of Trumps, you know, into the, into the story. I don't know. I, I hope it's true only because that, that would totally make sense. Otherwise, yeah. Why bring in a name Trump? Why not bring in just a, another well-to-do family of, of higher privilege that can come in and, and talk to the students and give the same idea across. Yeah. So to beat this horse to sure. a complete dead pole, mm-hmm. um, the, where I got the references on IMDb, it said Paul is sent to Forest Manor school, which is overseen and financed by Frederick Trump. Trump never oversaw or financed a school. He sat on the board of Q forest, which his children, Marianne and Donald a- attended that said this, air quotes, goof was likely intentional on the part of the filmmakers. Hmm. So, so I think James Gray is synthesizing stuff. So I guess like, okay. So, but you know, it's like, yeah, you change the name of the school basically. So Hmm. it's like, so whatever. So there is, there is grains of truth there. So there's that, but I guess maybe he really was, you saw somewhere online that he was accosted in the hallway. It's from IMDB as well for me. (laughs) Same place. James Gray attended the Q Forest School, whose alums included Donald and Marianne Trump. Like in the movie, Marianne did come to give a speech to the students when Gray was a student. Um, hmm. He also remembered Fred chastising him in the hallway. Um, Interesting. Well. Yeah. So. So they're saying, but I mean, the, the grain is there is truth there. Yeah. It's just some, I guess, specifics. Maybe right. whether or not they were like uh, supporters, financial supporters of the school or whatever. I don't know. Right. That was something alluded to in the film that. I don't know if that's true, but right. uh, sounds like he did have encounters with the two of them at that school, though. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, if, if I had been, <laughs> I'm imagining if I had been accosted by Frederick Trump in the hallway, you'd remember it. Lasting impression on me. Probably so. <laughs> so well, oh, and all I right. guess the other thing, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
kind of jarring. Marianne Trump's paid by um, Jessica Chastain. Yeah. So such a huge name actress. And it was like, okay, A, these are supposed to be the Trump, and B, this is like Jessica Chastain up there. I was like, whoa. Like, you know, it was just, oh, yeah, it, and it was just kind of, it, it took me out a little bit. Maybe that was sure. the point, was to sit and make me wake up and yeah. see, like, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't know if they needed that to be played by such a big name actress to kind of drop I didn't in there. Rec- even though I thought he did a really good job of playing Fred Trump, I didn't really recognize him. And he's yeah. an established actor. Oh, he is. Things, but, but it wasn't like it was shocking. Like as if Robert De Niro had It's been not Fred like a Trump big cameo kind of thrown in, just right. a kind of big name cameo like they, they tend to do sometimes. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was odd. That's interesting. I, 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 I admired Armageddon Time. I thought it was a, a great authentic portrayal of of a, a supposedly real life uh, situation of the director gotcha and uh chris you liked it you you were okay with it it's just you just wished it just didn't hold your attention it it wasn't engaging enough from a yeah. both technical and kind of visual standpoint or anything to kind of keep you engaged with the film it gets that stamp from me that maybe i get you yeah, it is okay. okay fine but All you know right. i feel like Maybe you are have the same feelings about Fablemans, but maybe a little less favorable. I can't tell. No, no, I, I'm I'm still going to say Fablemans is fine. Okay. I just me personally, I did have a major issue with script. Got gotcha. you. Um, and, and and the storytelling, which obviously is a, a big driver of the film for me. So, gotcha. but this one, I didn't have a problem with the script. I thought I thought the writing was great. Directing, yeah, it's not not anything to write home about. But I mean, I think it, it served its purpose and. uh so anyway, that's Armageddon Time by writer-director James Gray. Okay, Chris. So we're done with the reviews. Yes. We're going to take a quick little break. When we come back, we've got a couple of lists to share. List of nominations from Golden Globes and the list of the sight and sound best films of all time. Do we agree? Do we even have enough knowledge to agree or not? We'll <laughs> see what goes on with that list and what changes were made recently to that. So stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV, and we'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Jackson Creative, a custom communication agency located in downtown Hickory, North Carolina, specializing in online content creation. To learn more, visit thejacksoncreative.com. Jackson Creative, we tell your story. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. Alan Jackson and Chris Fry with you here from the Foot Candle Film Society and the Foot Candle Film Festival. Talking over, uh, we had our review of both Armageddon Time and The Fablemans at the early part of the show. But now we're going to change gears and talk about, uh, I mean, it's December. What else are we going to talk about? It's, <laughs> it's nominations and it's awards and it's list and it's best of and all that stuff. So Chris, as of this morning... The Golden Globes were nominated. Uh, the nominations came out for the Golden Globes. Now, regardless of how you feel about the Golden Globes, this is an organization that has had some challenges in recent years. I think yes. people realizing that, you know, it's a, uh, having some questions about, you know, the, the group of people who actually are making the nominations and uh, whether it's truly representative uh, of, of the best of this entertainment field or not. Uh, they're trying hard. My understanding is what I'm reading. They're trying really hard to kind of crawl back and gain some esteem back in the in the place but with both the panel of judges they're using and the people making the decisions. So we'll give them a benefit of a doubt, but I only look at these really not to say that, oh, what did they think the best was? It's more of a, this is a good, like you said, a little bit of a precursor of maybe where could we see the headwinds 
taking us when it comes to Oscar nominations. Sure. So, so let's go ahead and hit a couple of these highlights. Um, the Golden Globes have always been a little interesting in that they've always broken out their film nominations for Best Motion Picture uh, and then for Best Performances into Drama and then Musical or Comedy. That's the two buckets you put a film into. Gotcha. I have always had an issue with that because that what if a film's all three? You know, uh, <laughs> sure. a film can be a drama and it can be a comedy and it can be a musical. Could be any of that. I know they're trying to put them in the best buckets they can, and it basically means instead of there being just five nominees, we'd have ten sure. for best picture. But I think it weights it a little. If you've got a year that's the ten best films are all dramas. Well, you're not going to know that from the Golden Globes because we're only going to see five, and then they're going to have to pull the five best musical comedies out of the mix. Okay. That all being said, best motion picture for a drama. Okay. Uh, The five choices that they have given as nominations are Avatar, The Way of Water, which we have not seen yet, so we cannot attest to that. Elvis, the Baz Luhrmann film. The Fablements, which we just talked about a moment ago. Tar, which I still have not seen, Chris has seen, Chris is showing his, maybe is shaking his head a little bit of concern about that selection. And then Top Gun Maverick. So that's the five dramas. Okay. Top Gun Maverick does not surprise me that it's on there. Well, it is the populist choice. I mean, you know, it is a well-reviewed film. It is, you know, people like it. Audiences like it. Critics tended to like it. Tar to me is like the, that's the, that's the, we got to bring out the more. uh, Oh, yeah. More uh, artsy, the more avant-garde choice of the selection. Fablemans is the safe bet. That's Spielberg. It's about movies and mm-hmm. all that. Sure. Elvis is also, I think, relatively a safe bet, you know. And then Avatar, I mean, we have no idea how that's going to do critically or how the hell it's going to do box office-wise. So that one, I can't, I can't speak to that at all, like why that's there on the list, other than just more anticipation of what it's going to do to the box office. Sure. So, anyway. That's the five drama choices of those five, Chris, if you had to make a decision right now, those five are the only choices you have. Would it be the Fablemans? Okay. Are we doing this as far as what I think is going to win or what I want to win? Well, let's say want to win. Want to win. Of those five, Avatar, Fablemans, Tar, Elvis, and Top Gun. Yes. Yes, it would be the Fablemans. Okay. I, I think the Fablemans will win. And of those five... Um, I am fine with the Fablemans winning personally. I'm actually okay with Elvis winning too. Cause I do think Elvis was a good movie. That's Elvis is something I need that film. I need to revisit. Mm-hmm. Um, Alan and I were recently on another podcast, entrepreneurship exchange where we gave some business lessons, learned through film. It's an annual episode. They always do. So if you're interested mm-hmm. in hearing us talk some more about film, that's a podcast you can check out. One of the hosts on that film mentioned Elvis And it made me realize I kind of need to revisit that Mm -hmm. before I do some of the voting that we've talked about for the North Carolina Critics Association because it was good. I liked it, but I think I need to give it another look. Because, yeah, the Elvis, yeah, it was was got some stuff going on there. It does. It does. Now, look, I enjoy Top Gun Maverick just as much as anybody. I thought it was a really great film, fun film. I had a good time with it. But I'm not going to go out and say it's the best of the year. So I'm, um, I'm not there with it. Although it was a big surprise at how much I did enjoy that. And so. I'll go ahead and, uh, you know, podcast listeners couldn't see me shaking my head <laughs> with tar. That's one that I guess, you know, you hear if you've heard reviews about the Fablemans and it was hyped for you and then you saw it and you're like, yeah, I just don't get it. 
Tar is the film for me this year. You know, a lot of times you see so many movies, you go see a movie and you're like, okay, I'm not sure. I'm not on the hype train with everybody else about Tar. A lot of critics are on the hype train, Tar hype train. Kate Blanchett, yes, she gives a good performance, but the film overall, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not seeing it. It's the annual Chris Fry, I don't get it award. (laughs) Yes. Goes to Tar this year. Okay, good. (laughs) Well, now, uh, so the five more nominees for Best Picture, these are now musical or comedy choices. We have Babylon, which is the uh, uh, Damien Chazelle's film that we have not discussed yet. You have seen it. I've seen it. Chris has not. We will certainly be discussing it because I am eager to discuss this film. Okay. The Banshees of Venturian, which we have both seen, have not talked about on the show yet. True. Um, So that's in the musical or comedy category. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Is that one of the five choices? Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Unfortunately, we have not seen yet. Sadly. Sadly not seen. And then Triangle of Sadness, which I believe you have seen. I I have. Okay. So those are the five listed as best picture in the musical or comedy. Now, Banshee's Adventure. I mean, I guess, yes. If you had to put it into one of these buckets, I guess comedy works okay. It's not, uh, I wouldn't describe it to somebody else as a comedy, but. um, Because it's so like this. Definitely, but it's kind of subtle. It's definitely it's very, very, dark. very, very dark and very subtle. Yes. Yeah. Um, so of these five, I, I kind of don't want to tip my hand in this category yet because there's one, two, three of these films. Well, no, two of these films I have not seen yet. One of them I definitely want to review with you in a couple of weeks. So I feel like my me giving a choice, it might tip my hand one way or another. Well. If- but I mean, you having not seen all of them, it's kind of hard to. Yeah, it is hard to do. So I'm yeah. not gonna. I'm not gonna make a choice on this one. Okay, or yeah, I, I don't feel. What like do I think will win? I think because it's the Golden Globes, and it, because it can go. I think everywhere, anything, everywhere, all at once could actually win this in the Golden Globes. Now I don't think it's going to win Best Picture and Academy Awards. I hope it's nominated. But I'm just thinking in the musical comedy. If I look at these five. I could see that one winning for the Golden Globes. I don't know. It's so much of a weird thing, mm-hmm. like so much of an odd animal. I would think something more, I haven't seen it, something more, um, something like Glass Onion or something mm-hmm. that's a little bit more traditional. I haven't seen it, but I'm assuming it's more traditional. But I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that one's that one's a little little harder to, to gauge and to predict for me. So, yeah. Okay, so that's the five for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Best Director, I've just hit these kind of quick, the five uh, being listed for Best Director. And they group all these together, so they don't do director by drama versus musical comedy. Gotcha. James Cameron for Avatar, Way of Water. Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinart for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Boz Lerman for Elvis. Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inchirin. Steven Spielberg, The Fablemans. Now, look, when I look at these five, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is to me more of a, if you had to take the Golden Globes, try to figure out which ones might be more best picture nominees for Academy Awards. I'm like, this groups them together. This shows you the real, the real truth here to me. I think Avatar, I have heard some early reviews very early that are extremely positive on the film. And I think the original Avatar was nominated for Best Picture. It didn't win, but I think it was nominated. I feel like you're right. So I could see where this one could also pull out a nomination. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, I hope, is nominated for Best Picture. I think Elvis will be nominated. I think Banshees of Venture and Will. And I think The Fablemans will. So these five, to me, are like... Probably make 
five of the ten that'll be okay. Five or up to ten, you sure, know, or whatever 10. they do. Right, right, right. So I think this is probably the best predictor for me of what we could see as ones that are going to rise above on the uh, Academy Awards. Out of these five, Chris, between Banshee's Adventure and Fablemans and everything, everywhere, all at once. Because I know you're not going to pick Avatar yet. <laughs> and Elvis, you still need a second viewing. But right. of the others, any any favorite for you at this point? Man, it's Trying tough. to gauge where you are on these films. Yeah, and I think there's also recency bias, which you know plays into me not having need to see Elvis again. It sounds pathetic. And this is usually, you know, I, I push back against... Um, what everyone else says usually, but yeah, I guess the Fablemans. Um, mm, yeah, yeah, I could, I could still see that running away with it too. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's probably where it's going to fall. I think you know, it's always this kind of like a tide. You have the ebb and flow, and so sometimes there's like a lot of talk about a specific movie, and then it just completely dies away, and something like Coda ends up winning Best Picture. <laughs> you know, so. And then, cause that kind of came on at the end. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, it's, it's really hard to say right now. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk performances. I'm just going to list these out. Best performance by an actor in a drama. Again, they split them out. The act, the gotcha. leads, they split out drama and musical supporting. They do not supporting. Gotcha. They just do one category. So best performance by actor in a drama. We have Austin Butler for Elvis, Brendan Frazier for the whale, which we have not talked about yet, but I think we will next episode. If, okay. if I'm, trying to push for that review to happen. <laughs> Hugh Jackman for The Sun, which I we've had no connection with yet. You have not seen? I have not seen it. Okay. Bill Nye for Living. Heard of it. Have not yeah, seen have it. Have not seen it either. And then Jeremy Pope for The Inspection. Okay. Uh, the fact that three of those films are kind of low under the radar films, the only two I think that are getting a lot of acclaim are Austin Butler and Brendan Fraser. I mean, I think Brendan Fraser is going to win. Whether or not the film's good, and we will talk about the film as a whole, I think from a performance standpoint, I think that's his to lose at this point. Mm-hmm. Austin Butler, to me, would be the a possible runner, a, a possible second choice on it. But um, And see, yeah, this is where you, know, you can't read the minds of people. How people feel about the film as a whole, Elvis, yeah. and how people feel about the film as a whole whale does that influence them voting for a specific performance? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So yeah, like, I, know. I mean, for me, if I was, you know, tar and I'm voting for Kate Blanchett as playing tar or tar, the film, those are two, you know, like, but how much does your opinion flow? You know, it's yeah. tough to, true. to say. Well, while we're talking actors, just to kind of keep it rolling, because there's sure. a couple names that were missing on that list from a best actor performance role. That's because they're falling in the musical or comedy, comedy. category. Daniel Radcliffe. No, for sorry. Weird. No. The Al Yankovic story. Um, one of these is going to make you laugh. Okay. Uh, we have Diego Calva from Babylon, which again, I have seen Babylon. I'll echo that nomination. Uh, Daniel Craig for Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. Adam Driver for White Noise, which you have seen White Noise. Um, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Colin Farrell, Banshees of Inchirin. Okay. And Ray Fiennes for The Menu, for actor, on a musical or comedy. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then we have on the uh, actress side, actress in a drama, Kate Blanchett for Tar. Sure. Olivia Coleman for Empire of Light, which you just saw Empire of Light. Yes. I saw in Letterboxd. Yes. Okay. I plan to watch it, so we will discuss at some point. Okay. Viola Davis for The Woman King. 
Anna de Armas for Blonde. Okay. Yeah. And then Michelle Williams for The Fablemans. Okay. So, yeah, Anna de Armas for Blonde. That's an interesting... That's one that I wonder if people's... How they feel about the film influences mm-hmm. whether or not they vote for Anna de Armas for Blonde. Yeah, I've seen Blonde. And so. I also say the only reason I think that name shows up in this list is because it's five from a drama. And they, they pulled out all of the uh, musical comedy, comedy performances. Ones. Yeah. That's because when we go over to musical comedy for actress, we have Leslie Manville for Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Margot Robbie for Babylon. I will withhold my opinion on that one. So they're saying that is a comedy, not a musical. I or have not seen musical or comedy. Right, right, right. But I'm wondering which of the two buckets are they saying it's fair to put that? Because they're not saying like is Babylon. Would you consider I'm asking Alan mm-hmm. Jackson, do mm-hmm. you consider Babylon to be a musical or a comedy? Or both. It can be both. I'm just wondering, um, how is it How is it sliding into that? But I would it, have thought it was just a drama. So how is it no, sliding in? No, it is. Well, again, it's hard to classify. <laughs> okay. It is a comedy. Okay. But with dramatic, very, very dramatic elements. Gotcha. And music plays a huge part in the film all As the way through. films of Damien Chazelle yeah. tend to have, not so first that, man. That's but, one where it's hard to gauge that. Okay. Um, but okay. I will say Margot Robbie's performance Definitely skews more on the comedic side for the film. Okay. Than the dramatic side. Okay. So, yes. Fair enough. Um, Anna Taylor-Joy for The Menu. <laughs> Emma Thompson for Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Oh. Yeah. And, Mich- I- and Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere okay. All okay. Once. So, yeah, I'm surprised that um, Good Luck, Leo Grand. I may have recommended it on the show. You did? Remember. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, that... I'm glad to see Emma Thompson that getting some recognition. Yeah. I'd totally forgotten about it. Good. All right. So that's uh, that's the actress categories there. Got 10 of those 10 uh, total between the two groups. So last of what we have is we have the supporting actor and actress, which are all together. Just five nominees. Doesn't matter what genre it's from. Gotcha. We have Brendan Gleeson for Banshees of Venturing. We have Barry Kagan as for ben- Banshees of Venturing. Good. Mm-hmm. Good. We have Brad Pitt for Babylon. Okay. Again, withhold my opinion. <laughs> uh, Kiyong Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Good. And Eddie Redmayne for The Good Nurse. Have not seen it. Haven't seen it, yeah. but I my wife saw it. Okay. <laughs> so there, there's that. Then Best Supporting Actress, uh, we have Angela Bassett for Wakanda Forever. Mm. Carrie Condon for Banshees of Inchiern. Jamie Lee Curtis, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Dolly DeLeon for Triangle of Sadness. Carrie Mulligan for She Said. So that's the choices there. Okay. Yeah. Interesting on the. See, interesting yeah. the inclusion of Triangle of Sadness and the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, having seen both, mm-hmm. I think Triangle of Sadness uh, is the art version yeah. of the menu. Yes. And work, it wasn't entirely successful for me, but it worked much better than, than the, the menu. menu. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that is the Golden Globes. The, the, I, I'm just we're just giving out those categories. Obviously, they have categories for other aspects, but this is the main ones. The Golden Globes, I think, are spend their time on. Because then you get into over into TV and other sure. things with that. Um, interesting list. I think it does kind of shore up some things for us. For me, in my mind, I think Elvis is probably going to get a little more uh, Academy Award nominations than I maybe would have predicted earlier in the year when it came out. 
But seeing as how it's kind of being back in the conversation now. It's back in the sure. conversation a little bit. I think Banshee's Adventure and are still going to kind of get a lot of nominations, get a lot of acclaim for things. Babylon seems to be performing better than I would have maybe predicted. No, but better, <laughs> better than I predicted when we started hearing about the sure. film a few months ago. Although Damien Chabelle not nominated in the Golden Globes for director, and it's not nominated for Best Picture um, hmm. in either category, correct? Yeah, hold on. No, 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 it was. I'm sorry. Babylon was for musical okay. comedy. Yeah, Chazelle was the only one not really featured. The three main leads are all being nominated on the Golden Globes. Got okay. you. Um, <laughs> but interesting. Yes. We will be talking about, my prediction is, Chris, I think next episode we ought to review Babylon and The Whale, because those are two films that I think are terribly divisive with a lot of critics right now. I think we've seen some varied, varied opinions on I've seen Babylon. You've seen The Whale. That gives us the next week or two to watch each other's film that we've seen. And then we can come together and give our honest opinion on each of those two divisive films. Fair enough? Sounds fair. Okay. So that's the Golden Globes. We will be curious to see where that ends up. But we're really just kind of waiting for the Academy Award nominations at this, this point. That's, that's the big thing for us. Which those will be late January. Late January. Now, Chris, um, the sight and sound... 2022 top films, 100 films of all time. Yes. Has been updated. As we mentioned at the top of the show, this happens every 10 years. Um, it was an interesting year for this list. So every year the list changes some, but uh, for the last 50 years, the same film has, well, almost for the last, I think the last time this film was, uh, the list was done, the number one film changed hands. Yes. It had been Citizen Kane for like 50 years before that. I think, yes, since the poll started. Yeah. Yeah. And then it got flipped over to Vertigo. Vertigo was back in 2012. Right. Got named as Best Picture or the number one top film of all time. This year, it's changed once again. So Vertigo just had a one-time reign at the top of the list. <laughs> now we have a new number one, which I'll admit, Chris, I am, I'm not embarrassed to say this. I have, I know we've been reviewing films for many, many years. Sure. I know that I have watched a lot of films. I love films. I started, we started a film society. We started a film festival. Yes. I'd never heard of this film. I have heard of it, but only in the past three or four years. Okay. And I have never seen it, but I do briefly know what it's about. And I also know it is long. Right. So the film is Jeannie Daleman. And then there's the rest of the title is... 23 Quad du, du Commerce, 1080, um, how do you pronounce that? Bruxelles? <laughs> sure. Bruxelles? Jean Dielman is how I've heard people okay, talk Okay, Jean Dielman. All right. Yeah, yeah. Again, that was my Americanized butcher version of that yeah. title. It's a 1975 film. Right. Uh, it is a long film, like you mentioned. Uh, female director. I've already forgotten her name. Uh, Chantelle Ackerman. Okay. That is the voted on as the number one film of all time. I when I heard that because you know before this poll came out, you, know, you hear, hear a bunch of new critics talking about it. How it's time to do it again, and then this list was announced, and I was like, "Huh, interesting." That yeah. is not I. That is not something I would have expected. No, not expected. <laughs> so, I, I, look, I think it's great. I love that the the list changes, and I love that you know they, they brought in even more critics to kind of funnel sure. in and people Broad to it out. And I think that really helped kind of make sure they heard from more diverse voices and, and backgrounds and people this time than they maybe had in the past. I'm all for if every 10 years things just changed and people's tastes change, people's sure. opinions change, people's exposure to these films change. So I'm all for it. But it was just a little surprising to like read that and be like, 
whoa, okay. You know, <laughs> yes, any other film in the, the top list, I could rattle off. I'm like, yeah, I, I know these films. And if right. any of them had popped in the top number one, I would have been like, oh, okay, got it. This one, for me, came out of nowhere. And at first, it sounded like a joke. I'll admit, when it was online, when I saw some people post, posting it on that. Twitter, it's like, this is the number one film of all time. I'm like, what? Really? <laughs> but then I read about it. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I get it. It's, it is a well-revealed film. I have just not seen it. It is definitely what I would assume is a filmmaker's film. Yes. A critic's absolutely. film. You know, it's just very, you know. Yeah. But anyway, as we look at the rest of the top 10 list, you know, we have, uh, uh, how did you pronounce it again? John Dealman. John Dealman. Yeah. As number one. Vertigo got dropped to number two. Citizen King got dropped to number three. Tokyo Story up there as uh, the number four film of all time, top film of all time in the mood for love. Probably one of the more recent films there we got from 2000. So here in the last uh, couple decades, 2001, a space odyssey is up there. Bo Traval. I'll admit that's not a film I'm familiar with either from 1999. I heard it kicked around a lot. Heard, yeah. I definitely have heard of the director. I've seen other things by Claire Denis, but haven't actually seen Bo Traval. Yeah, so. that, that went up. That's another one of my blind spots there. Sure. And then Mulholland Drive from yeah. David Lynch, kind of rounding out. Is that the five? Uh, one more, Man with the Movie Camera from 1929, which kind of that classic film there as well. It goes on. They're singing in the rain. You got The Godfather a little bit further down. You've got The Searchers. You've got Close Up, Persona, Apocalypse Now, kind of on and on. That's rounding it, making those 20. Again, the rest of the list, I think you look at and you're like, yeah, okay. Uh, I kind of expect that. Seeing... Dealman kind of jump up to the number one, which just was just a interesting but pleasant surprise to see. Um, Chris, are there any were there any kind of notable things for you in this this year's list of top so, films of all time? Yeah, I mean the thing that was you mentioned that the beginning of the show that or the beginning of the show, but the beginning of the segment that um, this list was last done in 2012. So it was interesting to me. Yeah, you mentioned the top spot change to Jean Dielman, but some of the newer films that have happened since 2012 that all hit the list. Um, at number 30, which is the highest a new film has gotten on there, was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And mm -hmm. that was only from 2019. So yeah. it's a really recent film. That's already at spot number 30. You have Moonlight, which was from 2016, that hit the spot, hit the chart on um, 60. So yeah. it may have already been on. Well, it wasn't on there. It couldn't have been on there last time because it wasn't the around the in 2012. Wasn't around, yeah. So it's crazy that it you know jumps on there at uh, spot 60. You have one of my favorite films, definitely my favorite film from the year it came out. Uh, another film from 2019, Parasite, was mm -hmm. on the list at um, spot number 90. And then um, from 2017, Get Out hit. Was kind of like it. They it was kind of tied for 95th place yeah. with a bunch of other films. The way they do it, my understanding is they, the people that they do ask to contribute, they're not given, they don't say, Hey, what are your favorite hundred films? They say, what are your top 10? Yeah. So all these different critics, directors, all these different people submit their top 10 list. And then they create this list of a hundred from that. So, so the idea being, okay, if I had to kind of rationalize this, if they're asking these critics to give their 10 favorite, the 10 best films, they feel like, do you know if those 10 have to be rated or ranked, or are they just giving a list of 10? I don't know. I would assume they'd have to be ranked so they could assign Maybe. some type of point value. Or they're just saying how what film shows up the most, most on everybody's film. Gotcha. And out of all the people submitting, Jean Dielman showed up in the, the most, most times in the list of 10 films for everybody that right. submitted. 
I don't know. Or is it that more people had it rated as a number one if they do rate their films? Right. I don't know how that, I'm kind of curious how that all came together, but um, interesting list, you know? But uh, I, I mean, of course, any list of films is subjective. I mean, you know, they sure. say this is the best films of all time. That's as determined by everybody who filled out a ballot and submitted their favorite films. Uh, from directors and filmmakers and others on the well, lit on the what, on a, the, the what form a daunting there. task because you're saying they don't even get to choose a hundred for any one individual they have to say what they think are the best ten films mm-hmm. that have ever been made in the history of cinema that's uh that's kind of nuts <laughs> so Chris if I were to ask you I'm going to put you on the spot here before we go to our recommendation at the end here so, sure um, if I were to ask you and I don't know if you rate all your films in Letterbox. But I, I try, but I don't rate all of them now. If you were to go into Letterboxd right now and look at your film list of all the films you've seen okay. and sort it by rating mm-hmm. to where your your highest rating is at the top, right? do you know what your, your top uh, rated films are? So there would be more than one. I'm assuming there's sure. no way to tell what my top one is no. because I have more than one that's five stars with yeah. a heart. All right. Whatever. So just, uh, you know... Do you, you have some five stars up there? Sure. Do you have a lot of them? Do you know? I've, I'll tell you right now, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I've got ten. Okay. Ten five. So I technically have a ten favorite films. You do. Well, that's easy for you to do. Yeah. I mean, I have five, <laughs> Not ten fair. films that are, that are, that are five-star films for me. Um, I probably have more than that. Okay. I don't know how many more than that than mm-hmm. I have. But I, and the only ones I can think of off the top of my head that are definitely – Five star. Can you remember? Well, they probably have a heart. Would be uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Parasite. Off the mm-hmm. top of my head, I know okay. both of those are. Yep. The rest, I'm not sure. Hmm. So is it more? Do I have more than 10? Oh, you want me to pull them up and see for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought you. I thought oh, no, you were I'm sorry. Asking, I was do I know how many? List. And I was like, no. Oh, no. I wasn't asking as a. <laughs> oh, okay. I know. I'm wanting oh, to no. see what you okay. say. I okay. honestly did not know. No. But I can, I can find out for you. That would be awfully right convenient now. if I also had 10, because then I could say to. Which I'm sure Sight and Sound is going to ask me. In uh, oh no, you got a lot more than 10. okay. <laughs> I'm sure they're oh, going to ask boy, me. Oh boy, you got man, got you got a, a lot more. I was going to say if I do only have ten, I'm sure in 2032 Sight and Sound will come knocking and ask me for how you have at least a hundred. Oh okay, yeah. Films with a five star. Oh my gosh, Chris, that's <laughs> I like a lot of films. That is okay, amazing. Well, I'll have to go and see if I need to. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. That's interesting. I'll have to go huh. look at that list. <laughs> yeah, that's that's okay. This wow, this is really fascinating. I encourage anybody if you're not already on Letterboxd, uh, jump on Letterboxd, look up Chris Fry, and do a little sorting of that. Man, I, I guess I'm just a lot more critical about my films. I, I don't know a rating of it. I'm not sure, but for me, I only have ten that I gave five, and I give a bunch of four and a halfs because I'm like, all right, I love these films, but there may be just one thing holding me back from just saying I'm unabashedly five stars with it. Yeah. And I would, I'm going to hazard to guess that I may have so many because it's recency bias. Like, you know, the older films, I'm just like, I don't know. I'll have to look. Yeah. Going to make that a thing to do. Anyway, that'll be fun. So I encourage if you're not already on Letterboxd, jump on there, (laughs) Uh, friend me and Chris, and you can kind of compare our list. And that's Uh, L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. No E on there. So yeah. Yeah, because it's funny when I look at my rating list. Um, yeah, it's it's really funny how it's exactly ten right now. It's crazy, wow. and I can tell you the ten. I mean, I'll do this just for fun. Can uh, I guess some of them? Yep, go ahead. Why don't you do okay, that? It's more, so that's more fun. 
We have Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is a five star. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That is a five star. Um, not Babe. No. But probably that's right on the outside looking in. Mm. Um, those two. <laughs> no. I kid. Those two are the only ones that I know you're really strong about. Yeah, I'll run off the other ones here. Um, And I love my top 10 because it's a nice assortment of filmmakers and and film styles. That is good. Uh, Psycho. Oh, By Alfred Hitchcock. Goodfellas by Martin Scorsese. Silence of the Lambs by Jonathan Demme. Uh, I have Boogie Nights by Paul Thomas Anderson. Almost Famous by... Uh, Jay, uh, what's his James name? Cameron, the guy who uh, Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe. Yeah, you had the Cameron part right. Yeah, yeah. Royal Tenenbaums by uh, Mr. Wes Anderson, and then the, my my two guilty pleasures, but I still will will fight for them to the end of time. Uh, Back to the Future. Oh, okay. And Die Hard. Yeah, I could see that. That's my ten favorite films. Got you of all time. Uh, unabashedly. Now I've got tons of four and a halves. So is that much is that where Top Gun ranks? No, I'll, I'll admit Top Gun's not a four, Top Gun might be a four star film. Okay, it's not four and a half. Okay, four and enough. a half is still upper echelon for me. Of like these are still magnificent films. There is maybe one aspect of them that just kind of held me back a little bit. Hmm. That's fine. Okay, actually, most recent four and a half star film for me. I've got two of them that are very very recent. Uh, Nine days. Oh, and uh, Mass. As far as like films from the last couple of years. Yeah. That yeah. were four and a half star for, for films for me. Anyway. Understood. Okay. Well, it was fun. Yeah. Killed a lot of time there, Chris. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's go ahead and get back on the track with the show here. Sure. Sorry for the diversion, but I just thought as we're talking best films of, the, of all time, we got to explore our own as well. Um, all right. So last thing we're going to do, Chris, here is we're going to talk about our recommendations. Yes. As I mentioned, we've been going long on this show, so I have no qualms about skipping out on my recommendation because I don't have one. I do not know a film to recommend. I have been inundated with holiday films playing in my house nonstop and I am tired of them already. And it's like still kind of early December. So Chris, do you have a recommendation for me of a film I should watch now to get me in a good, good mood for the holiday season or just a good film to watch in general? Well, I'm going to recommend, it is a new film, 2022. It uh, is Spirited. It is available mm. on uh, Apple TV+. Plus. Okay. It stars one Will Ferrell and yes. one Ryan Reynolds. It is, uh, the story is, each Christmas Eve, the ghost of Christmas present, played by Will Ferrell, selects one dark soul to be reformed by a visit from three spirits. But this season, he picked the wrong Scrooge, Clint Briggs, as played by Ryan Reynolds, turns the table on his ghostly host until present finds himself until he finds himself reexamining his own past. Will Ferrell as uh, Christmas present. So, and it's also a musical. I should throw that in there. So if you're musical averse hmm. automatically don't, don't see this. Um, I'm not saying this is the greatest holiday movie ever, but it's good. It's, it's passable. I think it's definitely if you're looking for something new, so you don't have to see a Christmas story on repeat you might try this. Good. Um, I will say I watched it with the extended family over Thanksgiving holiday and for the rest of the vacation for better or worse, the kids, and I mean this by like 10 years and younger, were running around saying good afternoon constantly. So Alan, you may say good afternoon to me after you see this film because you didn't appreciate me recommending it. Um, you'll understand that reference when you watch the film if you okay. do, but uh spirited. 
It's on Apple TV Plus. It costs you nothing if you already have a, a subscription to that service. And it's it's good. It's not going to be one of my favorites, but I will say, kind of like how I mentioned with the Fable ones, do I kind of want to watch it again, at least for some of the sequences? Yes. Okay. So, spirited. I am so happy to hear you recommend this. <laughs> no, seriously, because I saw the previews for this. And I mean, the fact that it's an Apple TV Plus film made me think, okay, well, it's probably going to have, it's probably going to have some elements of good to the film. I, I just I think the Apple TV Plus in general hasn't put out Drek yeah, right. yet. Gotcha. So I just, I didn't want it to be just a cash grab movie of let's just put, you know, Ryan Reynolds because he's kind of big right now. And sure. To hear that it's actually a, a decent film. It's okay. Makes me pretty happy because right. I, I think holiday films are hard to pull off to really get in the zeitgeist of people every year, something that people want to watch every year. So, and here's the thing, uh, you know, criticism, it's, it's not hard hitting. Obviously it's a Christmas. It's not meant to be. Don't need it to be. Um, It is a little sugary. Okay. Okay. That's That's true. But I expect Christmas movies to be that way. Um, And you hear the plot and you're like, yeah, this has kind of been done before. True. You know, the whole Christmas past Christmas. Okay. But here's the thing. The film's aware of that. They're mm-hmm. not trying to be like, okay. hey, we're so original. Like yeah. they kind of they kind of acknowledge it. So that that helps. That's so good. I like spirited. That. Give it I, a shot. I'm absolutely I will be watching it this week. Okay. I am ready and hopefully it'll be on repeat on my house instead of Christmas vacation <laughs> or home alone. Fair or enough. some of these movies I'm just so tired of. So okay. I understand. All right, Chris. Well, that sounds like a pretty full episode to me. I think it's time to wrap it up. Yes. The Fable Men's. Chris really likes and is do. recommending. I'm okay with it. Wish it was better. <laughs> but I'm still going to give it a passable recommendation just because of the craftsmanship involved in making the film. And, you know, it has it has some really great moments in it. Didn't even mention the uh, scene in the hospital with a family member um, last moments and where yes. Sammy Fableman's focus. That was brilliant. Um, yeah, there's, and that brings on something. Else. See, that's the thing. Yeah, I think there's, there's some so great much moments. to talk about. There's such a great moments. That, yeah. 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 And then Armageddon time, I was higher on it than Chris was, but I think we both see that there's, you know, it was, it's a good film. Chris had some issues with, um, kind of the visual style of the film and overall engagement level with the film. Uh, me, I found a lot more to appreciate and uh, respect out of the film itself. Then we had our news, Golden Globes, Sight and Sound, best of the all-time films, and we shared a little bit of our own. So with that, Chris, anybody who has any feedback for us on anything we talked about, the reviews, the list, your recommendation, whatever it may be, how can they get a hold of us and, and talk to us about it? You can send an email to info at footcandle.org. You can follow us on Twitter at footcandlefilm. We've already talked about Letterboxd enough. Try to track us on there to see what we're watching and maybe read one of our reviews on there. You can also, we'd appreciate it if you would, give us a star rating, write a review, share with friends or whatever service you receive your favorite podcast to help us reach new listeners. We'd appreciate it. Last but not least, the 2023 Foot Candle Film Festival will be September 18th through the 24th. So if you're in North Carolina, specifically in the Hickory area, and want to check it out around that time, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, come spend some time with us in Western North Carolina in late September. We'd love to have you here and joining us. All right, well, with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you have a great rest of the month. I know we get together and record sometime in a couple more weeks, but it's going to be probably coming out after holidays, after Christmas. 
So happy holidays, Merry Christmas, whatever you may may celebrate in your, your own uh, family. And we will see you, talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.